0: I'm Howell, and this is Craftish. For this week's show, I sat down with singer, musician, and KUTX DJ, Elizabeth McQueen. Elizabeth talked to me about what it was like touring with an iconic Texas swing band, about her experience singing a duet with Willie Nelson for a Grammy-nominated album, how motherhood might have changed her career focus, but definitely not her creative prowess, and how projecting Prince videos on her dress during a live performance fulfilled a long-time dream. Elizabeth is one of those women who personifies positivity, and really is just good people. Without hesitation, she gives of herself personally and creatively, and I feel lucky to call her my friend. Here she is now. Elizabeth McQueen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I, Your voice has been equated to... Etta James and Loretta Lynn spliced with honey, which, by the way, before I even comment further on that, that is possibly the best com- like, compliment that anybody could ever get. So, well played, friend, first of Thank all. You. <laughs> uh, uh, I read this quote in Reverb Nation, but I, I'm curious about the fact, so you're a gal who grew up in Maryland, which is not necessarily <laughs> the hometown of either one of those ladies, where does a voice like yours come from? Where where did those influences, if they were actually influences and not just compared to, where, where does that come from?
1: Well, they definitely are influences, although I feel like um, the voice that I have was kind of like a, the voice that I was given in a lot of ways. Like, I um, I mean, I've done a lot of study around singing and taking lessons and stuff but to a certain extent like the timbre of my voice and and what it kind of sounds like is just what I was born with like I I don't have a lot to do with that um
0: yeah but the way that your voice sounds at least to my ear you could easily translate it into something like a Kathy Hannah from Bikini Kill like your your voice the has a quality to it like absolutely absolutely you're at home with the aforementioned sound but they're definite. but you take it there as well yeah
1: totally I mean I think definitely when that quote was written and so that was written I think in the mid 2000s
0: uh, yeah it might have even been a bit earlier than that yeah
1: maybe yeah maybe a little earlier I was super 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 into um into classic country music. Like that's pretty much all I wanted to play and like Americana and, um, you know, and Etta James kind of being on the outskirts of that as far as like soul music and R and Um, and that was really the only thing I was interested in doing at the time. That was the reason that I moved to Austin because I had been living in DC. And like you said, like that's not really the home of country music necessarily, although there is a small scene, um, but I had discovered this music in my early 20s that I just loved and that, like, suited my voice. Because, like I said, I was born with this, like, specific kind of voice and it didn't really fit. Like, it's interesting that you say Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill because I have never really been able to sing, like, rock very well. I find it just that hard it, it to believe. It just doesn't come across. Like, it's a, it may be now that I'm, like, nearing 40 I'm maybe accessing parts of myself that I wasn't accessing in my 20s which is which is kind of backwards but whatever um but in my 20s I just it just wasn't that just wasn't happening when I was singing it didn't it didn't come across um like in high school I was in a band and it was a prog rock band called iridescent dreams and it was my first band and (laughs) I love it totally
0: (laughs) normal so prog rock in Maryland Oh yeah, iridescent dreams. Called iridescent dreams,
1: and I'm still really good friends with the guitar player from that uh, from that band.
0: That's amazing.
1: But, yeah, and I and I grandfathered into the band. So they had a singer, and then they asked the singer to leave, and they had me come in. So there were all these songs um, that I didn't have any hand in writing at all, but I was singing. And my sister's boyfriend at the time was like, "So this was the '90s. So this is like such a '90s." thing that he said he said it sounds like the indigo girls singing pearl jam (laughs) (laughs) um which i I feel like i guess
0: that could be a compliment not not, you know
1: i kind of knew what he was saying i kind of understood yeah Um,
0: but yeah i mean he just felt like it wasn't your home it wasn't and i
1: and um and i've said this before like you if you want to sing rock you kind of have to like release the beast yeah and I just wasn't there in my 20s. So, yeah, I really loved uh, classic country and, you know, classic R&B and really, like, felt like my voice was very suitable for that kind of music, too, which felt very nice, like, like to finally find a genre that it was a little out of step time-wise, but it seemed to, like, really fit my voice. Is so. that the
0: type of music that your parents listened to?
1: No, 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 no. no. My mom really loves show tunes mm. and like 60s R&B. So we listened to a lot of like, uh, Temptations and Aretha Franklin. And then my dad growing up, it was like classical music, which I had no interest in and Jimmy Buffett. I could sing you probably every word to every Jimmy Buffett song ever written mm-hmm. and the Eagles. Um, So my parents just, they had their things, and that's, we never listen to country music. Like, I have no reference for country music in the 80s and 90s, because I never heard it. Um, But I just kind of discovered in college, classic country, on my own, through a band called BR549, I heard them open for Bob Dylan, and they played country music. And then I bought like a used CD of theirs and just loved it. And they were doing neoclassic stuff. And I thought like, well, if, if I like these guys a lot, I probably like the people that they're emulating. And that got me into like Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline and Bob Wills. And I just fell in love.
0: I feel like we're, we're close in age. I'm a bit older than you, but I feel like the discovery of Patsy Cline, especially, you know, Dolly Parton, for sure. Like, all of the golden ladies of country. It's, like, a quintessential, like, stepping stone in music for all... (laughs) And I grew up in Southern California where, you know, like, we're very much like the SoCal punk scene. So, it doesn't really seem like a straight line. But for me, it's such a common thing for me to talk to other women in our general age range about how, how much of an influence those women had... On our musical tastes in general, do you think yeah. that was? Do you think that that was just sort of the the? They were all semi-revolutionary. There was a strength there. Do you think it was more sort of just their essence, their their nest, for lack of a better term, uh, than anything else?
1: I mean, I think it. I think it was like a for me, it was a revelation because I had grown up in an era of country music that didn't that was playing on the radio that I didn't feel like I had any connection to at all. Like I had no interest in nineties country. And I think it's a very common thing for people who are not raised with country music to be like, I like every kind of music except for country. Right? You know? So I really had this, like, um, it's just kind of hokey and it's cheesy and I have no interest in listening to it mentality about country music. And then when I heard Patsy Cline or, Loretta Lynn, you know, because Loretta Lynn, I think, was probably the most revolutionary female country singer of them all. You know, you hear her, like, singing these, like, stick-it-to-the-man songs again and again, like, The Pill, or Rated X, or Don't Come Home a-drinking with Lovin' on Your Mind. Um,
0: (laughs) Which, by uh, the way, (laughs) like, should be a t-shirt, just in general, still. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, totally.
1: Or, like, something that you just, like, put on your bedroom door, like, (laughs) Just so you know.
0: Just in life. <laughs>
1: yeah, just in life.
0: Like, instead of the whole, like, uh, if this man's a rockin', don't bother knocking.
1: It's like, yeah, it's This honestly. would be the opposite. Flip around the sign. <laughs> <and it's, laughs> don't come home and drink it with love it on your mind.
0: Did you yeah. sing as a child? Uh, yeah, totally.
1: I, um, yeah, I always loved singing, for sure.
0: Were your parents, did your parents sing at all?
1: No, I actually don't have any musicians like anywhere near me in my family or my extended family. Like you have to go out onto like second cousin branches to find people who play instruments. So I grew up in a family, my um, my dad and, and a lot of members of his family are visual artists and my dad's an architect. And um, yeah, I, I was kind of, my sister is a visual artist so I was surrounded by the arts and I was surrounded by creative people, but n- there were no musicians. It was just me. So,
0: Is that how you expressed yourself? Was music always how you expressed yourself creative, creatively at that point before you'd sort of found your, your jam? Um,
1: I really, you know, it's interesting. I think it was a, I hesitate to call it, creative because I wasn't actually creating things for a long time. But for, for me, music was more about like connecting to this like deep part of who I was. Maybe that is creativity. But I feel for like a long, that's the I mean,
0: same thing. I, th- I feel I like that's the, the key that. that unlocks.
1: For a long time, though, like it was just about singing. Mm. And I think that... I find this with a, a lot of singers, like when you can sing, you don't have to learn an instrument. Like you just kind of can sing. I mean, you can take lessons and stuff and, and improve your instrument, but singers, you know, a lot of times they can, I just, I, I didn't want to write songs. I just wanted to like sing. Like I was in all the choirs in high school and then I was in a band but I wasn't particularly like interested in creative expression beyond just like this. Uh, It's hard to describe. Like for a long time, all I wanted to do was sing and I didn't care like in what context I just loved it. And I loved choral singing because that was the first time that I felt the like, um, this kind of intangible connection with other people. Mm -hmm. Like when choral singing is really, really good. It, this thing happens where you feel like you are yeah, like part you of something larger. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: Do you remember? Do you remember a time when the switch happened where you went from, you know, just wanting to not hear your own voice, but use your own voice to actually using your voice to say something?
1: I do, and I, I actually, it was actually pretty recently. <laughs> Really? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, I moved to Austin because I wanted to play country music and I wanted to sing and I wanted to, to, to make a living playing music. But for a long time, like, it was not about saying something. Like, I didn't have things in my soul that I wanted to get across to the world. I mean, I wrote songs because I didn't want to just play covers. But there wasn't like this, um, I don't know. I feel like maybe I just didn't have a lot to say, but after I had kids, yeah. that's when, that's when I kind of made the switch from like, I, I, and so that was after I'd had my own band and after I'd been in Asleep at the wheel, which is like my dream gig because I was just a singer. I wasn't the band leader. I wasn't like in charge of writing the songs. All I, all I did was show up and sing. And it was beautiful. But after doing that for a couple years, and and then having kids, I really um, all of a sudden, then I had like things I actually wanted to express to other people in a real way.
0: I want to talk about asleep at the wheel in a bit, but but first, let's let's touch on that on motherhood and about the connection between. I mean, literally creating a human being, <laughs> and, and having and, and having the desire to then create on a more public forum. Do you do you feel like there was a definite connection? You you mentioned that the timing was kind of around there, but did th- did that feel creatively like there was that connection?
1: Oh, definitely, a hundred percent. I think because looking back on my own worldview pre-kids, it it was just very myopic. It was very, very narrow and very self-focused.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, And then having kids, I mean, I just felt like, like all of a sudden my worldview just expanded exponentially. And all of a sudden I saw the world in this much more like connected way and, and I was actively thinking about other people who were not me. <laughs> like, and that just, um, I think that it, it like opened a door inside of me to, to really want to actually, you know, start talking to that expanded world or start being part of like a, a larger conversation, which I think ultimately is what um, creative expression is all about.
0: Is You have two young girls. Is that something you're trying to bring to the parenting table with them, the ability as girls, as women, as creative beings, however you want to take it, to use your voice not only creatively but to say something? Yeah. I mean, I think,
1: you know, in it's kind of twofold. Like in my own work, I want them to see a mother who is, um, you know, actually trying to make work that moves people or changes people or affects people um, and is, and who's also kind of pushing herself to do new and interesting things that some, sometimes may fail because I think it's really important that they see an adult Try, you know, adults trying to do things and it not always working, but like it being okay.
0: Absolutely. Um,
1: and then I, I also feel like a lot of these lessons I didn't learn until I was an adult, and I didn't learn until I, you know, because I came to the like I didn't even really start seriously considering being a musician until I was twenty one. Um. So a lot of the lessons of like the creative process and. And how to, you know, how to kind of be kind kind enough to yourself to let your own, to access your own creativity are, are lessons that are pretty recent for me, like within the last 10 to 15 years. So I feel like that's a, a lot of what I want to give my girls is, um, you know, to tell them these things that I didn't hear when I was a kid just because yeah that's not the environment that I grew up in. I mean, my parents were great, but... Um, and they were totally encouraging, but we didn't talk about like the creative process or how like mistakes are kind of awesome because you learn so much from them and.
0: Um, and sometimes they open know. windows that you never would have otherwise looked out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and the, the interesting thing about that, and this could just be <laughs> this could just be me putting my stuff on you, but <laughs> but I would think. And maybe it's just me that it feels this way, but you know, there's the the philosophy of being creative in the way that has now been opened up to you. Possibly, you know, motherhood gives that gives that to you. But then the reality of time constraints and how how much is involved in being the kind of parent that you personally choose how to be, and still having the mental and physical energy to produce that creative material while still being there for your child or children. Is that a struggle that you feel? Have you figured out a way to balance that at all?
1: (laughs) If you figured out a way, let me know, because I have definitely... no, no,
0: no, my friend. I would not be asking that question if I had the answers, trust me.
1: (laughs) I mean, it's, it's, I I do kind of wish that I had tapped into that more before I had kids, because I look at the time before I had kids, it's like this vast expanse of time that I like, wasted (laughs) like I'm much more productive as a parent than I ever was as a kid-free person which is you know which I mean I can't have regrets like it is what it is but I look back on that I'm like oh if I had only known I could have gotten so much done because now I don't have the ability to like get an idea and just like lock myself in a room for three days and fall into it and totally make it happen. And, um, and that can be frustrating. So what I've, I mean, the balance that I try to like give to my, like the way that I try to find the balance is allowing myself to have ideas that can, can, that don't have to happen right away. So for instance, I've had this idea of, um, projection mapping onto clothing, like for a really long time. Like I used to stand on stage and asleep at the wheel and like my daydreams would be like, one day I'll be on stage and I'll be wearing like this outfit and like things will be projected onto it. And I think that's gonna, that'll be really cool. And I probably started thinking about that five years ago. And then just this past weekend, I finally did it. Like I got invited to play um, a song at uh, a Prince tribute concert. And they wanted me to do a solo song, and I was like, oh, that sounds really terrifying. But then I thought, like, well, what if I just projected a bunch of videos of prints onto, onto a white dress? And then um, it was, like, a doable enough kind of scale for yeah. me to do it. And, uh, and so, and I did it. And it was like, oh, a five-year dream has been, like, fulfilled. And now I know how to do something I didn't know how to do before and now i can do it in the future but just allowing myself to like ha- have ideas in my mind and understand that you know sometimes it's going to take a while before they
0: before they get to happen
1: <laughs> because i've got to make lunches and put people to bed and like hang out with people yeah
0: i so respect that you have the ability to honor that i personally have such a struggle with time i always feel like I always feel like I'm running out of it. Like there's not enough of it. I'm running out. It's not it's gotta happen now, now, now. But I'm and you know, I'm sure that it comes with maturity. I'm slowly as I'm getting older realize that if you sit back and honor yourself enough or have enough I don't know, I guess it's it's knowing yourself enough to allow the things that are actual ideas that are going to work out in the way that they should to happen in a time frame that you maybe physically don't have the knowledge to know when that frame begins or ends, I think is a, is a learned skill. And I so respect that you were able to give that five years, like having the faith in yourself or the faith in the process to let it just come and, and be what it is.
1: Well, and I think that's something I'm only now kind of accepting because i the majority of the time I feel exactly the way that you described, like, because there is not enough time to do everything that I want to do. And, you know, there, my, my free time when I can be creative is very limited. Um, so, I mean, I feel like I deal with that kind of frustration all the time and, there, and I have a million things in my head that I want to do, but there's just, like, this very limited amount of things that can get done. Uh,
0: How do you sort I, through I, and prioritize? I don't know. Do you? Know. Does it just, I don't know. do you just kind of let things settle and whatever I'm trying through, such through?
1: <laughs> I'm trying to get better about prioritizing. I think the first thing, it's been a real adjustment since... Um, I left asleep at the wheel to kind of figure out, like, A, what do I want to do with my time? And B, how much time do I want to spend on different projects? And um, I think the thing that I kind of learned first was, like, to figure out what I didn't want to do and start not doing those things because every time I would do something that I was kind of on the fence about, um, it wouldn't feel good, it would take up my free time, and ultimately, I would leave feeling kind of unsatisfied. Yeah. So the, what I've been trying to tell myself lately is, like, I don't have enough time to do any project that I don't really, really like. Like, it's not it's not worth it for me to do something that I'm going to approach in a half ass manner or that I feel weird about from the beginning. So saying no to things has, has been really freeing. Um, but most of the time, I'm just trying to figure out how to, like, I check off things from my to-do list, and I end up only like answering emails, and then it's time to pick up kids from school. Right. <laughs> like, uh, okay. Well. Lather,
0: rinse, repeat. Lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs>
1: exactly. Or like fold clothes, do dishes, pick kids up from school, make dinner,
0: and oh, by the yeah. way, write a song.
1: Oh, oh yeah, writing a song. That is the thing I think that suffers the most, and I keep on telling myself that I'm going to make dedicated. Songwriting time—it's
0: impossible because the, what if the flows? What if the flow's not there from the hours of you know ten thirty a.m. to eleven thirty p.m. Like what if the flow's not there? Well, and that's
1: the thing—it's like that. I think I have so little time that setting. Yeah, you're right. Like setting aside time where two or three hours could go by and nothing productive could happen. Although, like in my mind, I know that like even if it doesn't happen in the moment, s- songs and projects are like puzzles so you spend time on them and you work on them and then if you can't figure them out in the moment like when you're you know giving your kids a bath your your subconscious is actually putting that puzzle together mm-hmm. so even though I know that's the way it works like it's so frustrating, frustrating to think yeah. like I could I could you know I could give up three hours of time that I could have been doing all these other
0: things and something like you might as e- well have been answering that email then Well, yeah, I mean, and then the email, and then you still have to answer the email, you know? Right. And you're like, if I I had known that the flow would not have been there, I would have used that time answering emails and or, you know, mopping the floor.
1: Or the other part of it is, like, like what if the flow is there? And then what if, you know, 4 o'clock comes around and it's time for me to go pick up the kids, but I'm still in the flow? Like, it's very hard for me to switch gears sometimes. Yeah. And, you know, because then when you go, when you're with your kids, it's like you want to be present and you want to be there. Um, Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. And I I know that there'll be a time very soon when my kids will be grown up and they won't need, you know, they won't need me. And I'll have plenty of time again to maybe go back and do projects. But then I'll just be really sad.
0: Right, right. Yeah, I find, so I have... um you know, I, one of my daughters is the same age as, as your oldest daughter, but my, not one of my daughters, I only have one daughter, but one of my children. Um, but my, my boys are both teenagers now. And, you know, I'm finding that For me, and I also split custody, so I only get them half time, and they oddly still are cool hanging out with me or hanging out at home, and I find, and this is, you know, just as a sidebar, you know, we're friends, and I would so love to physically support you at shows in the way that I hope that you feel that I mentally support you, because I absolutely (laughs) respect your hustle and identify with it and mentally high-five you for it all the time. But my boys still are around, and they're still here in the evenings, and I only get them some time. And I'm so conscious of the fact that, you know, Tanner's gonna go to college in two years. Oh, like, yeah. I only have so many more years where I can, it's just not my life space to be able to go out to shows right now. And so I hear what you're saying. I hear, you know, it's, it's a reality check, as frustrating as it can be, and, and how you feel spread too thin. The, the truth is, is that time goes fast. And there'll always be time to be creative. Yeah,
1: I mean, this is just, like, a really short era that we have of, you know, having our kids in the house with us and then wanting to be with us, you know? Because I remember being a teenager, I didn't particularly want to hang out with my parents, I you know, know, nor did I. So, <laughs> I know. And I feel like right now, you know, it's, it, they're saying, like spend as much time with me as you can spend as much time with you, me as you can. And sometimes I'm like, Ooh, I, I need my space, yeah. but I know in a couple of years it's going to flip Yeah, and they're going to be like, whatever, mom. And I'm going to be like, but don't you want to hang out with me? So, you know, kind of, yeah. I, I, like what you're talking about, like honoring the era that you're in and knowing that it's not going to last forever and, and knowing that prioritizing being with your family. I mean, that's where it's at. And that's, I, I don't, it, does, it may not look like it on Facebook, but I don't play as, uh, I don't play as many shows as I kind of thought that I would at one point in my life. But my husband is a traveling musician and he's right. gone half the year and my kids go to school. So for me, to play a gig means that my kids are without both of their parents, you know on, on a, any given night. And that which feels really terrible, I was torn up inside for the first year after I left to sleep at the wheel because I felt like I had to play all these gigs, but I was playing gigs and I was just feeling awful about it because I was leaving my kids like alone with a sitter, as opposed to having one of their parents around. And um, finally, I just made the decision like I'm not going to play that many shows at night a because like all my friends are in the same boat that you are like like, it's not like people of my age group are going out to see shows that much they just there's a lot going on you know and it takes a lot to like hire a sitter go see a show I mean not only are you leaving your kids but you're spending you know 60 bucks before you leave the house
0: yeah Uh, it's different living here though in austin so you know when i moved here from california i already had two babies and i was the only the only person in the general friend group for a good a good nine years that was a parent at the same time and so i i i had come from a totally different world all of my friends had kids where where i was before where the expectation of sort of I don't want to say like prolonged adolescence, but definitely there's a different level of responsibility when you when you don't have children. Was which is sort of part of the Austin zeitgeist, and and still sort of is even the parent. There's just there's such a different vibe here with because it's such a creative city. There's also a lot of creative parenting, right? Yeah. And so. Like the parents may stay home with their kids all day, but then they, you know, play shows at night or they may, you know, I know very few people who have actual nine to five jobs. Um, And so there's an interesting, all of our friends are in similar places now, but I feel like everybody handles it in a different way. Because yeah. we don't have the you know 1950s setup of one parent does this, the other parent does that. One parent works nine to five, the other you know or whatever. There just doesn't seem to be any anything modeled for us, so we're all kind of just making
1: yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, hundred percent. And I think you know for me it took it. I had to like just assess to myself like, I I don't want to I don't want to go out all the time. Like I don't want to leave my kids, you know, without. At least one parent there, um, so that was that's kind of the way that I've handled it. Like oh, I'll just play fewer shows and do stuff during the day. Is right. my is my thing. Is,
0: is that um, was that decision part of what led you to becoming a, a DJ on KUT and also starting your own podcast? Yeah, definitely. Is 100%. that some, is that something that you can do during the day?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, that all takes place when my kids are at school, which is kind of my goal to have a lot of stuff happen when my kids are at school, so that when I'm when I'm with them, I'm with them. Um, yeah. So KTX actually happened because way before I started touring or doing anything, when I would first moved to town, I had this like revelation of like, well, maybe music is not going to work out. Like, it's a high. That's a good possibility. And so I thought, like, well, what, what else would I do or what else would I want to do? And, and at the time, I was 23, and I thought, well, I'd really like to work in public radio. Like, I love public radio. So I interned over at KUT. Back oh, when I it was didn't KUT. Know that. Mm-hmm. And then when I was getting off the road, it was just after KUTX had split, and I had the same thought. Like, well, besides playing music, what would I like to do? And the same, that same answer arose, which was, I would really love to be involved in public radio. And I really love KUT and KTX. And they had just started this music channel and I just luckily, I went over there and said, I'm getting out of, I'm leaving a sleep at the wheel if you guys need like any help for DJs. And um, I, I was lucky that they said,
0: yeah, yes. Was there an audition process? Yeah, yeah.
1: They had me do some overnight stuff, and um, you know, it was. They kind of. It, it was. Like, it was more like a, like a like a teaching process of them teaching me how to how to operate the board and stuff, and just making sure that I could do the thing.
0: Yeah. Right. Do you have anybody engineering for you?
1: No, during the show. No, it's just me, which is fun. Which was so nerve wracking for the first like six months. Every time I would do a show, I would just hope that I didn't press the wrong button. sometimes I would. Um, And then with the podcast, uh, that was another, you know, I I was trying to figure out what else I could do associated with KTX. And I came out with this idea for the podcast. My friend um, PJ and I actually came up with it while I was still on the road. And they, that has, sometimes that's, that has a lot of different people involved in it. So sometimes the interviews are engineered by Cliff Hargrove or Jake Perlman at QTX. Sometimes I record them. Sometimes um, Jack Anderson records them. There's a bunch of different people, like Jackie Fuller will do interviews, or Taylor Wallace will do interviews. And then we have a bunch of editors. Um, my husband, Dave, actually helps edit, and I edit, and Jack Anderson edits, and John Parsons does editing, too. So that's more of a big... Collaborative team effort. Yeah. To put out that and podcast. this
0: podcast, just just for listeners, is called "This Song." And even though it is produced for KUT, it's on iTunes. Anybody can listen to it. And you interview musicians from. I mean, we're fortunate living in Austin that musicians come here all the time. So from all over the world, about the music, the song or songs that influence or have influenced them. Correct.
1: Yeah. It's it's really. It's evolved. When we started, we had like a very general idea of this is about important songs. And we kind of left that up to people to, to figure out what that meant. But we've, um, we've changed the question. And so now the question is like, what is a song that like, transformed you in some way or changed you? Because the mm-hmm. way that I lay it out to people is there's all the songs in the world. And then there's your favorite songs. And then there are the songs that you heard and they like blew your mind wide open and made you see things differently. And those are the songs we want to talk about because you really get a feel for people's creative point of view and, or some kind of like insight into their creative process when you, when they tell you about songs that changed their lives.
0: Do you use these conversations to refuel your own sort of passions and curiosity about music? Has it become sort of a research tool for you?
1: absolutely I yeah mean, isn't it
0: wonderful I feel the same amazing. about this podcast <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's,
0: I feel it's, like it's like this evil like plan to just like <laughs> be like the succubus of information from all these amazing people
1: I mean for me it's it's like has had all these great um you know just personal I want to say consequence that's not the word like uh, whatever consequence I can't think of the word. It, it's just done all these great things for me personally, so I feel the same way. Like mm.
0: it's,
1: it's kind of for everyone, but it's kind of for me. Yeah,
0: yeah. But those are those are the best. <laughs> I feel like those are the best kind of collaborations, and but they're collaborations not just with the person whom you're interviewing, but also with the listeners for the people that are affected. Because then they br- they bring it back and talk to you about what that gave to them. I just feel like we're in this place where we can have this amazing communication with like with the world and sort of feed, there's, like, this kind of reverberation of creativity that comes um, from things like podcasts.
1: Yeah, I mean, I definitely feel that, and I feel like the same, like, in a way, my ultimate podcast listener is, like, my kids in five or six years, when Mm. they're starting to really make their own stuff. Like, I or, or people who are just being creative or who want to make things, hearing other people who are creative and making things, talking about why they do that and how they do that and what their struggles are and what their inspirations are. Like, it just, because I, I really wish that I'd heard that stuff when I was a kid or when I was first starting out. And, um, yeah, I love it so much. And it makes me, like, listen to music like a teenager. Yeah, yeah. You know, because <laughs> like, I had gotten into a point, I, I just got into a point where I didn't, like some, and a lot of musicians will tell you this, like, where you just kind of stop listening to music. You know, it kind of feels like going to work all the time yeah. and you're over it, or it's hard to find stuff that makes you feel like, you know, the cure did when you were 15 years old. And then you hear someone talk about something, and sometimes it's a It'll be like a David Bowie song that you know, and you revisit, and it it just opens you up all over again.
0: It taps into that same thing, yeah.
1: Yeah, or sometimes it'll be something you've never heard. Um, like a guy, Mobley, came in and talked about Kanye West's 808 and Heartbreak, which was a record I didn't have any experience with. And I put it on, and it like it just killed me. Really? And it was all I could listen to for a while. You know, like that kind of thing is... So great.
0: What I also love about um, your podcast is that, I mean, I go, sometimes I go into it fe- feeling like the the kid that really doesn't belong in the record store. Like all the record store like cool nerds are like looking at me like, oh, you like that because it's on. You know, it's popular now. I liked it before it was cool. A lot of times I do like scroll through the list of your saying, Oh yeah, I still don't, I still don't know. <laughs> but what I love about it is that. You know, even if I don't know who the musician is who you're interviewing, the stuff that influenced them I often do, and I then check back into it. You know, I, I was telling you this the other day. I was listening to an interview that you did with a woman whose name is skip is escaping me right now, but she talked about the the early early Ani DeFranco stuff, and that was my whole heart and soul in the, You know, in like the mid '90s, but I yeah. hadn't listened to it. Probably since she stopped being angry, <laughs> you know. Um, and I just, I it sent me down this rabbit hole of, of just feeling the way that I felt the good stuff, feeling how, like how passionate I felt listening to some of that music, um, reminding me how I actually wrote a thank you note to Ani DeFranco after I had a child and listened to her music and felt like she'd given me a little bit of myself back. And I love that. I love that these conversations just tap into those periods in your life where you really felt something
1: yeah yeah that is so I'm so glad you had that reaction like that that makes me so happy (laughs)
0: yeah you wrote a thank you note to Ani DeFranco I I did I I love it I did and it was back in the day I mean this is before there was email or anything it was back you know and one of her assistants wrote back you know or whatever obviously like she's not writing with it but it was just one of those things where I was just like well, I was always, my mom taught me to say thank you when somebody has given you something and your concert gave me X, Y, Z. I was such a nerd, you know. But, oh, that's so cool. But, what? you know, and so I try and honor that. This was before I had any sort of public persona at all. You know, I was a stay-at-home mom at the time and didn't realize how much comes at you. And I tried to think about that moment anytime somebody takes the time to say something kind like that to me. Um because I remember, you know what that feeling is like, and how vulnerable you have to be to actually express that gratitude.
1: Yeah, totally. And and that and that's that's vulnerability a is a it. gift.
0: Like yeah. it's a huge gift.
1: It's a gift. It's a gift for the person giving it, and it's a gift for the person getting Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. We've talked. Um, we've we've mentioned a couple of times um, your stint at Sleep at the Whale, and I wanted to spend some some time talking about it. You. What is it like coming in? So, just as a basis for you know, people, if if you live in Texas, Asleep at the Wheel is an institution. It's been around for forty years. Um, if, and you know, worldwide it's an institution, but especially here. And yeah. you came into it. I think I read somewhere that you were like the eighty third member, roughly, or something. Like you came into it as after it was a well oiled, established machine what is that like creatively to walk into something that is so, you, you sort of mentioned it earlier before about how great it was because you could just sing, but are you able to influence any of your, or infuse any of your own sort of creative spirit into something that is already so established or do you just have to sh- go show up to your job?
1: Well, I mean, that's an interesting question. So I think the way that you really creatively contribute to that band is by inserting your personality into the performance. So that band is, they, they, they make recordings and I actually did have um, a couple songs that I either suggested or wrote end up on records that we were on. So that was great. But I, but you know, the aesthetic of that band is very, um, is very much like a thing that has been established over 46 years. And that, that, and the band has a leader who has been there since day one, who, who's Ray Benson, who's like the you know he he's really the arbiter of that aesthetic. So you can creatively contribute some, but ultimately it's up to Ray, and ultimately it's kind of Ray's vision and his band. But the way that I I've the way that I found the ability to express myself creatively in that band was through performances, which is no small, you know, thing that band plays 150 days a year. So you get a, a lot of chance to, to express yourself and just, you know, when it was my turn to sing, making sure that I was trying to be as present in the moment as I could be and inhabit the song and, you know, interpret it in a way that would come across as not just showing up and doing your job. I mean, definitely there are some days, I feel like, especially after I had kids, when I was very, like, when my, because we took our kids on the road. Mm-hmm. And so when I had my first baby on the road and I would get up on stage, it would be like, how quickly can this hour and a half go by before I get back and see my new baby? You know, mm-hmm. so that that felt very much like sh- just showing up to work. Um, but if it was going to be any good I felt like I really had to try to be there as much as possible were you given
0: the room to creatively riff at all or did you have to fit okay
1: yeah yeah you in there so western swing which is the kind of music that asleep at the wheel plays is a mix between country and jazz and so there's a lot of like part oriented stuff like different instruments playing different parts but a lot of improv well the, the parts are the same night to night but then there's a lot of, um, because there's a jazz influence, you're really encouraged to, to, Im- to improvise for a fair amount. So when I sang, I basically could do whatever I wanted to do singing-wise. And if it was really too far out, you know, you might get a, like, you need to rein it in a little bit on that song. But mostly I could, I could sing whatever I wanted to sing, you know, within limits. I, I couldn't go free jazz. <laughs> You can can just start scatting in
0: the middle of the song. uh, So through the band, you were given the opportunity to sing with Willie Nelson. And if I have listened to Sitting on Top of the World one time, I have listened to it a hundred times. It was in the summer, not in the fall,
1: and now you're gone gone. I don't worry you should be worried I'm sitting on top of the world
0: it is such a phenomenal song and I can't not ask you about the experience of working with him and I read I read an Austin Chronicle. You, that you said that you had no concept of, of you know, what it would be like to sing live with him, um, and that he was super present, and that when you sang a duet that he would actually look into your eyes, which I feel like I would just implode if that happened. Um and then he would actually, you know some of the stuff we were just talking about, he would change things up. and how do you how do you grow into that? First of all, what is your experience, because you did this night after night on a tour with him? What does your experience look like on day one of performing live with the Willie Nelson? And then on day twenty five, are they does it feel the same? Is it different? Is there a comfort level that happens? Is there a mutual sort of understanding between musicians?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, on day one, like you said, I just didn't know what to expect. Like, and when it happened, it was so connected in a way that, like, I hadn't, because I hadn't done a lot of duet singing just in general. And so, you know, I just didn't know what was going to happen. And then when Willie Nelson, like, turned and, like, looked at me and, like, looked into my eyes. And it was, like, I mean, it wasn't I'm kind just of like,
0: breaking down just for you right here. <laughs> I,
1: mean, I was, like, I, I wasn't... I, I just didn't know, you know? And, like... And it was, like, oh, my God, he's, like, actually looking at me. This is not <laughs> stagecraft. This is not, like, part of the show. Like, he's looking at me. And I need to look at him. And he, like... And it's... We are going to communicate. I mean, that was just... If anything, it was like the like the greatest lesson in kind of what it's all about. Yeah. You know, cause my theory of Willie Nelson after touring with him on a couple different configurations and just seeing people like absolutely lose their minds every time he comes on stage, is that he has he is the master of openness and connection and, like, vulnerability. And he comes out on stage and he, it's like his heart is open and his soul is open and people feel it and it makes them feel open. Like, like you think, like, people cheer for Willie Nelson because he's uh, famous and a star, but that's not it. Because, like, we went on tour... With him and Ray Price and Merle Haggard. And, like, Ray Price would come on and everyone would clap. And then Mm -hmm. Merle Haggard, who is as famous as Willie Nelson, I think, um, would come on and people would clap louder. And then Willie Nelson would come on and people would just lose their shit. And I think it was because they could feel it. They could feel that openness. And everyone, my basic thesis of life is that everyone is looking for... That kind of openness and connection, connection with other yeah. with other people, um, and it's just really hard to get there. And when you find someone who can help you get there, you love them.
0: So after you left um, asleep at the wheel, you've had a series of other bands and still do, and they, and but they haven't really well. Your band jazz trio does still does still feel influenced by country, correct? Mm-hmm. Feels, but. EMQ is more electropop. Yeah. How how does that that which doesn't seem it doesn't seem as much like a natural progression as as the jazz trio does from Asleep at the Wheel. What what about Electropop interests you? What about your journey took you there now?
1: Well, I you know, EMQ is really where my heart is these days. And I think there was a really long period of my life when I was only interested in American roots music. Um, And that period is kind of in the past now. Like I have a jazz trio with my friends. It's fun. And we play private parties and it's like we, it's the same people who are in EMQ, Lindsey Green and Lauren Cojillo. And it's a good time, but that's definitely not how I want to spend my, my creative time or put my creative energies towards that. And You know, I don't know, just maybe being in a Western swing band for eight and a half years, like by the time I left, I just felt like, okay, like I did that. Mm -hmm. Like it's, I have done that a lot and, um, and during my time in A Sleep in the Wheel, I started listening to more, not like electronica, but um, music with electronic instruments as part of the the deal. So like hip hop bands like Caetrece or the Streets or um there's a woman named MNDR who does like great electropop. And this the sounds of like electronic drums and synths they just started to become more and more what I was attracted to hearing. And strangely, the sounds of natural instruments <laughs> were not. And I think I did, it's just because I'd been doing it for a really long time. And so when I left, I, um, I had done a, a, a record called The Laziest Girl in Town, which was a jazz record. And when I left Asleep at the Wheel, I, I, in my final days of Asleep at the Wheel, I'd been working on a remix project with my friends out of St. Louis called, named Brothers Lazaroff, and they did these remixes of these jazz songs and I just like really liked, liked it. And it was the first time that I thought like I could potentially do something that's not Americana based and like use these instruments and these sounds that I actually really love hearing. And so I got together a band because Brothers Lazaroff is based out of St. Louis. So we couldn't play gigs together. So I called up my friends, Lindsay and Lauren and said, you know, do you want to, form a band and we can like interpret these songs that that were done as remixes as a band and then I started writing for that project and then I realized like you know like I said I don't have a lot of free time and if I'm gonna spend my time making something it's gonna be it's gonna be something that I really love and um and that band has also kind of opened up this world of collaborating with people in uh, interactive media. So I met a guy named Jerome Morrison, who does um, interactive installations where he uses Connects, and then he projects things in such a way that they look like holograms. And we've collaborated on a couple really big projects together, and we've connected the music that I'm making with EMQ to these this interactive projection art. And because EMQ is an electronic band, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of crossover between what the instruments are doing and what you can, you, you can do a lot of things visually because, um, electronic instruments often use MIDI and MIDI can control sound, but it can also control light. I mean, it can, it can control whatever you want really. So that's just been like my big, my big revelation, like this, this, this is now what I want to do.
0: It feels like that fits in very much with what you were talking about earlier with the projection onto your dress, how this is to, like, it's just evolved into something that's become more sort of, like bigger and all encompassing.
1: I am starting to just really be attracted to this idea of, of like a, like an immersive synesthetic experience where what you, what you hear affects what you see and You know, your movement can control things like light, like things that you don't expect to be connected, being connected through different technologies. And uh, I mean, there's just the ability to do that, which is amazing. So that's that's what I want to do.
0: I can't I can't wait to see what you come up with next. It's been so fun following you. And thank you so much for being on Craftish with me.
1: Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you for asking me.
0: Elizabeth McQueen's music, show dates, and link to her podcast can be found on her website. For more info, photos, and videos of Elizabeth's work, please check out this episode's show notes page at vickiehowell.com slash craftish. Craftish is produced in Austin, Texas by me and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is written and provided by Explosions in the Sky. Thanks to all of you who have taken the time to give us positive reviews on iTunes. We so appreciate the help that it gives us in spreading the word about this podcast. Tune in next Tuesday for another new episode of Craftish. Until then, and especially now in light of the unspeakable tragedy that happened in Orlando this week, take time to make something beautiful and positive and put that out into the world. Today I'd like to end this episode with an audio glimpse from Elizabeth McQueen's current electropop band. This is Shame by EMQ.